0: Installment of the SUS News Podcast Series, where we make history, broadcasting applications of unmanned technologies live and from the field. This is episode 44. I'm your program host, Patrick Egan, and let's say, as always, hello and a warm welcome to our co host, Gene Robinson. Gene.
1: Hello, Patrick. How are you, sir?
0: I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's out here, uh, early out here in California. Not that early, but earlier than you guys have got. Um, So uh, you missed, uh, you weren't on the uh, Drone Law Talk Takeaway Show, but uh, I don't know if you got a chance to listen to that, but that was some some pretty good uh, informative information about uh, what people are upset about as far as uh, ethics and privacy. Did you get to listen to that, or were you busy?
1: (laughs) Sorry, Patrick. Uh, we've been out in the field here and working for the past week or so, and it's it's been tough for me to get any of the news. Unfortunately, we just you know that's what happens when you go out and you fly things around for uh, a week. You miss out on a lot. Obviously, you've been keeping up with it. I know you spoke, so uh, you need to fill us in on uh, the laws that are and the, the things that people are upset on.
0: Uh, you know, in a nutshell, it's kind of pretty much like we had, uh, uh, you know, surmised. Uh, most folks have concerns with, uh, you know, with the privacy issues and people spying on them. But mainly, it's the police. Um, uh, again, you know, I, I still I've I've been out there asking people, you know, what they think of a drone. They uh, describe the thing with the bulbous nose that kind of looks like the uh, beluga whale with missiles on it. That's that's what most lay persons think of a drone, and when the police are going to have drones, that's what they think is coming here, and uh, they're not interested in in that. Uh, I think that people see that as a uh, civil rights violation, you know, the, uh, the targeting, killings, and assassinations, and all the rest. It's just a guilt by association. Now, when you talk about all of the um, positive uses for it, people are all into it. There no complaints. And even the police, you know, hey, you just get a warrant before you're going to do surveillance. I don't think we're too far off the mark. I really think that we could fix that problem. It's a little bit more education. Uh, But that was pretty much the upshot on that. So that was encouraging. Well, that's good.
1: That's more than we've been trying to espouse for the last several years. And the the privacy laws that are there and the, the procedures that the law enforcement need to use are still in effect. And they should be enforced, pure and simple.
0: Yeah, and uh, you know, yeah, you're not going to get any argument from me. And uh, I will say that when they heard that, they were like, "Oh, okay, yeah, that sounds great." I mean, everyone left upshot on the deal. Everyone left with a smile on their face. Code, code pink cut out early, so it's not that difficult. You just, I, I think what it is, and, and I've said that one other time, is, is you know, if you're not thinking uh, with a business plan, if you're thinking like uh, you know an American and not without the business plan, you can probably. Um, bring people into the fold and say, hey, you know, here's what we wanna do. Nobody had any problem with the civilian uses. Nothing. It's just the police using the same technology that's being used in Afghanistan on the Taliban here. So soon as we get off the DOD thing, you know, as soon as we soon as we uh, realize that, you know and you know, the funny thing I was thinking about this, not to get too far into the weeds, but really there's only one offender. One offending company that we're paying the freight on. And it's the beluga whale with the bulbous nose with the missiles on it. But oh well. Anyway, the uh, other things in the news that I thought were pretty interesting and I just want to cover briefly. Did you see the, the Star Trek symbol in the sky over London at night?
1: I did happen to see that they had, uh, what was it, up to 50 quadcopters with LED lights on them over the most secure part of central London.
0: Yeah, and, and okay, so that's really, I mean, that was cool. I mean, I'm a little bit of a, a Star Trek guy, you know. Uh, I grew up on the original show, and I was like, wow, that's really cool, you know, that they're they're using this. Not only is it, you know, a, a big company um basically put this on, okay, but I, I think it's kind of funny, okay, so you have that, right, and then you have the, we ran that story, and we ran another story on the S U S news about, um, uh, I guess, Aerovironment uh, and New Mexico State University are going to do a study um, where they're going to fly a UAS at night, okay, so for me, uh, when I hear that, I'm like, hmm, okay, so we're going to study flying one UAS or small UAS and the NASA over here in the United States. Meanwhile, back at the ranch in England, they're flying 50 of them in a swarm at night over London in, in at one of the, the top three busiest uh, airports right around there in the world. What, what do you think about that, Gene?
1: Well, it's obvious that somebody's worked out the separation issues over there, um, you know, even if – it, even if they had to call for you know a flight restriction or something like that, they obviously got it coordinated, and I, I really don't think that they would call for any sort of diversion at London Airport or Gatwick or any of those. Road, those yeah. are hubs.
0: I know. Is that kind of weird, though? I mean, it's like all of the uh, it, it's almost a, um, I, I don't I mean, I, I, an Alice in Wonderland kind of thing. I mean, here, you know, we're leading the way, right? Um, we're going to, it's its its March of 2013. We're going to do a test at night in restricted airspace. <laughs> you got a swarm of 50 of them flying over London at night. I mean, is that even, I mean, does it, to me, the study sounds like a waste of money, a waste of time. There you go. Here it is right here. Just ask these guys to write it down and there you are. There's the procedure. This is how you do it. You got 50 of them flying in a swarm. Have a nice day. That's me. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Well, you're not too far off the mark. I mean, and not only that, to, to double the the insult, if you will, it was a commercial venture. Oh yeah. Well,
0: that's that's the uh, the, the that's that's the the whole Alice in Wonderland thing to me is it's uh, paid for by a huge movie company who wants to invest in the technology who's going to use this more in the future. But not only that, I mean, 50, nighttime, London. You know, I mean, this, this thing, I mean, they might have really, the uh, Aero environment, New Mexico State thing, pack it in. You're just wasting time. It's stupid. I mean, I, I let one, and we're going to do one in restricted airspace. I, it just doesn't make any sense to me. I think what it does, though, is it helps illustrate how far behind the curve uh, that we are here in the United States. How far behind the curve on the technology, how far behind the curve we are on the will uh, to get anything done. And why is that? I wrote a story about this, it disappeared, but I, I drew a direct um, point A to point B line back to the DOD vendors. We have been hijacked, co opted by those DOD vendors. And, uh, that's why I, I, we have the dysfunction that we have in this country. So when you ask yourself, Hey, you know, how come I can't go out there and do business, you know, follow the, follow the, uh, breadcrumbs right back to, uh, the DOD vendors. Cause plain and simple, that's it. I know that's going to make me popular. Um, a lot of people are, are getting tired of me beating on the, uh, DOD vendors because for some reason it's not their fault. It's my fault or somebody else's fault for asking questions and, and making the FAA angry um, you know, I don't know. It seems kind of silly. Any feedback on that, Gene?
1: Well, you know, everybody since World War II, the, the, the mill spec process has been the standard that everybody seems to want to go to. But, uh, what, what you know, and, and people complained about it later in the 60s and 70s because that's how we ended up with the $800 hammer and as you move into that that uh, military industrial complex it just it costs significantly more money to play in that game and unfortunately uh for a small entrepreneur you either are resigned to being a subcontractor to one of the big guys or you end up having to spend a lot of money to get to the point where you're recognized as somebody who can provide a platform or a service that that will work
0: yeah, but more of that. I mean I you know, I'm going out on a limb myself and that's a rigged game. I mean that's that uh, that whole process is, is sewed up tight, you know. You it's even if you do have a good product, if you don't uh, have the right connections you're not getting in there. And that's just the way it is. I mean people I don't even that's a whole nother show. <laughs> so Let's, uh, let's draw it back on here. Uh, today's show is pretty exciting. Uh, we've been planning it for a while. We've been talking about it for a while. And uh, it is one of the uh, news stories on the front page of the SUAS News. And uh, what it is is uh, what you're doing this week, Gene. So let, let's talk about that. Where are you and what are you doing?
1: Okay, we are at uh, a National Guard base. In the middle of Texas, it's called Camp Swift, and we are just outside of Bastrop, Texas. And we are doing some groundbreaking fire research with the National Institute of Standards and Technology, NIST. We are out here because uh, with the Texas Forestry Service, uh, uh, their assistance, uh, we have been able to set up uh, a TFR, a temporary flight restricted zone, and bring our super-bad aircraft out here and fly over areas that they were intending to burn anyway. And uh, it allows us to do a lot of science in a very short period of time, and uh, I I personally happen to think it's probably the best bang for the taxpayer's buck that, that we can portray right now because when you consider in the united states there generally is something on fire all year <clears throat> round and uh well, even now there's fires in colorado and we're approaching the fire season now where you know texas is burned florida is burned california burns and the 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 dollars that incense that get about cents but the dollars that get burned up and uh the the research that we're doing that could aid in in reducing that is just it's staggering. And uh one of the guys that uh, we're working with and uh, I'm I'm very pleased to introduce here is working on this uh this groundbreaking exposure scale and uh, I'll I'll introduce him now if that's okay.
0: Yeah, go for and, it. Uh,
1: yeah, his name is Alex Madden and uh he works with the uh in National Institute of Standards and Technology, and uh, what I'll do is I'll let him introduce uh, himself a little bit further and give a little bit of a bio, and uh, we'll we'll let him tell, you know, his uh, approach to this and what our goals are, and then we can take it from there. So I'm going to introduce Alex right now.
0: Alex, excellent.
1: Thank you for having me um, on uh, your
2: uh, uh, show. I want to. Know take a couple of minutes uh, before going into the details of our current operation to provide a little bit of an overview. Uh, the um, work, as Jean mentioned, is uh, done through the National Institute of Standards and Technology that is uh, part of the U.S. Department of Commerce, and this work is done in partnership with the uh, U.S. Forest Service. The main focus of our uh, research are the structures that are being lost at the Wildland Urban Interface. And uh, our primary goal is to identify hazard mitigation solutions to help us reduce losses uh, in the future from such fires. The work is done in partnership with the Forest Service because we're looking at hazard mitigation solutions both in the wildlands and within the interface. So we're looking at what can be done in wildland fuels as well as what can be done to harden structures and um, as well as how to lay out um, communities uh, in the future in order to reduce hazard and ultimately risk.
0: Well, that, so with that, that uh, well, go ahead. I'm sorry.
2: No problem. Um, to, to give you a sense of scale, uh, how big the problem is, uh, it is growing uh Very rapidly, Uh, in the the first decade between 2000 and 2010, uh, we're losing um, uh, about 23 to 2500 homes uh, per year. Uh, Last year, in um, the last year that we have data for 2011, we lost over 5000 homes.
1: Wow. Uh, The uh,
2: problem is. Uh, escalating. Uh, It is primarily right now centered in the southern and western parts of the country. However, it is growing, and uh, if you uh, recall just recently, a couple of weeks ago, we had a fire in Tennessee where over 70 structures were lost. Uh, We've had uh, a fire in Myrtle Beach where over 100 structures were lost a few years back. Uh, It is uh, spreading, Uh, but Primarily focused in uh, Western and Southern uh, U.S. The hmm. three um, primary reasons why this you know, we have the um, this problem escalating in uh, in scope, its size, and scale, the um, uh, additional uh, fuel in the wildlands, climate change, and additional um, growth of the wild and urban interface, meaning more structures are being built uh, at the interface. So with that background, I want to tell you now a little bit about uh, specifically what we're uh, trying to do uh, with um, uh, UAVs. Okay. Uh, Questions so far?
0: Oh no! You're uh, uh, that's fascinating information. It, it makes sense. Um, and, and actually, that was going to be the follow-up question: is uh, why unmanned systems, or why you turn to unmanned systems? Um, all right. Or what, and what, me, you, uh, what you thought of that?
2: All right. Uh, let me tell you now specifically what we're trying uh, to solve given the problem that i have outlined and then uh, show you where the the uh and man systems fit in and why the uh, challenge that we've had one of the primary challenges uh with this uh, problem has been essentially the lack of quantifiable information Specifically, with respect to fire and ember exposure. So mm-hmm. let me let me give you uh, a little bit of additional perspective, and that will really help hone in on uh, the work we're doing here. Uh, the island and wildland but interface fires uh, are one of the last um, natural disasters, if you will, that don't have a scale associated with them. So you can think of earthquakes, you can think of tornadoes, you can think of hurricanes. We have intensity scales associated with those events. Uh, We we have not had historically a scale associated with wild and urban interface fires. And as a result, uh, every fire appears to be the worst fire. Mm. So this lack of scale has prevented us from quantifying the severity of the exposure and uh, when i talk about exposure i talk about fire as well as embers embers being those flying uh glowing firebrands or debris mm-hmm. uh, that contribute to the spread of fire so this past december uh NIST, together with the us forest service <coughs> pardon me uh we created this um, WUI hazard scale specifically to address this issue. And this is absolutely critical because it enables us to link the field conditions through mm-hmm. a well-quantified path. You can follow the dots from the field conditions to test standards to, sorry, to test methods and ultimately to codes and standards that are then adopted to build safer communities.
0: So this is kind of like um what you're getting at here is so if we had an earthquake, we have the Richter scale. And then people that hear is, oh it's a eight point two earthquake or or a tropical that storm. Is,
2: that is exactly it. So okay. uh uh another way to think of the WUI problem uh is and that's that's what we have um Used as one one analogy, say look you know, if you want to build it, just take as an example. Uh, Cali- if you want to build in California, uh, you use certain seismic criteria that are linked to building practices, best practices, to codes and standards and testing. Right. And that's how your buildings can withstand certain earthquake exposures.
0: Right. Um, or oh, sorry, go ahead.
2: Yeah, our scale is aimed, it's the framework that's going to enable us to link the field conditions to the test standards, which will then, once introduced to building codes and standards and best practices, will enable us to reduce uh, structural losses uh, and, of course, human losses at the wild and urban interface.
0: Right. So and then- that, go ahead. Well, I'm just going to say so that would also probably uh, come into play, like we were talking about the building codes for seismic. I mean, I have a cabin out in the woods, and then I I get assessed a certain uh, amount of money for uh, fire fire prevention, and then also the difficulties of trying to get uh, structural insurance because of forest fires and everything else. and, And everybody kind of gets hit with a blanket because there's no standard that says this is whatever zone here, yada, yada, yada. And, and so that will probably come into play in the future here as this, as this develops. Is that correct?
2: Absolutely. And this method, this we, while an urban interface has an exposure scale, can be used not only to help with land use and the design and construction of new communities, but it can also be used to, Assess, evaluate, and retrofit in a cost-effective way existing communities.
0: So, is there uh, interest from the insurance community? Have ha- have they been involved with you guys, or are you just doing your own thing?
2: So, uh, we are not doing our own thing. This is uh, in a partnership uh, with several states, uh, code organizations, and the insurance industry. So, uh,
0: excellent.
2: It, the uh, challenge here is um, not one of – it's not an institutional challenge. Uh, the industry, uh, scientific community, codes and standards communities, everybody is supportive of the technical foundation. The challenge here, the, overlaying, the, the overarching challenge is a technical one. We have mm-hmm. very little information. And that's where now we can uh, dive in and talk about uh, unmanned aerial uh, vehicles. That's one of the pieces of the puzzle uh, that that uh, that we're trying to solve uh, here, uh, specifically in this exposure scale. So let, let's talk specifics. What we're trying to do is we're trying to create a scale, go through fire and embers. And if you think of the exposure, the three Components that drive exposure fuel, topography, and local weather. When we talk fuel, we don't just talk wildland fuel, we talk all fuels. They can be urban interface fuels, they can be structures that burn, they can be cars that burn, sheds, gazebos, fences, or ornamental vegetation or wildland vegetation. So, mm-hmm. all of the fuels we need to understand two things, what embers and fire they generate when they burn and what it takes to ignite them. So let's focus on what embers and fire they generate and let's furthermore zoom in and look at wildland fuels. What we want to do is we want to be able to quantify the fire number exposure from different wildland fuels And this is what we started doing here in Texas with our unmanned aerial platforms. So specifically, uh, we are starting with the simplest um, technical configuration uh, because even that is quite complex. So we're going to start with uh, homogeneous fuels such as And we're going to look at flat terrain with low to moderate winds. We want to collect fire behavior information. Now, the way we want to do that is by using an unmanned aerial platform, which can loiter for a significant amount of time and enable us to capture the critical fire burning zone. Now, we're not only interested in the leading edge. We're only interested in the trailing edge, and that is absolutely critical. Um, It's critical for us because in order for us to solve the big-picture technical problem, we need to create reliable tools, i.e., computer models. And we cannot conduct safe experiments in the very, Uh, severe conditions under which some of those wild and urban interface fires occur. For instance, uh, we cannot safely conduct uh, experiments during Santa Ana winds Mm -hmm. in high loads in steep terrain. Uh, It's just not safe. Mm -hmm. So we are using our models to understand the technically simpler cases validate the models, and then use those models and apply them to the more complex conditions that cannot be safely uh, tested out in the field. Uh, does this make sense? It uh,
0: makes perfect sense. So, you know, how, how did you, um, let's say, land on the unmanned aircraft tool, let's say, right. uh, oh, for this? Let
2: me tell you, that's a great question. Let me give you the, the, the history of where we are in terms of our wild and field data collection. Uh, You can count on on less than one hand the number of studies that have generated to date date, uh, reliable data for wildland model validation. Uh, There is very, very little uh, information out there. The Australians have really pioneered some of this work uh, by conducting over 100 uh, grassland experiments, uh, and they used fixed-wing, um, manned uh, platforms uh, to collect their data. Uh, we have some of their data, and uh, we've been using it for model validation. However, we have identified a number of limitations uh, with the use of that particular uh, technology. Uh, looking at the specifics of where we want the data to be collected, the The specifics of the environment, smoke, altitude, duration of the flight, um, payload, sampling rates, uh, and uh, the additional um, weather data that we're collecting aloft. All of this led us to the use of an unmanned aerial uh, fixed wing platform.
0: Now, let me ask you one other question. This is kind of a, a, let's say you mean like a fire weather type of question. I mean, I would imagine, you know, we've heard from some other people that are using these unmanned technologies uh, and they're, they talk about the different variables. And, and so I'm going to ask you kind of a technical question about the variables in your data collection. So if we have a fire, there are, are undoubtedly variables as far as, say, moisture content in the air. Temperature, wind speed, wind direction, um, and then also, I guess, uh, variables as far as the uh, rainfall for the year, vegetation, things like that. Do those factor into your models, and, and how do you quantify those? Uh,
2: this is a great question. Uh, the uh, short answer is yes uh, for the vast majority of uh, the, the variables that you. Uh, specified. Uh, We have uh, developed a model called WFTS, uh, Weiland uh, Urban Interface Fire Dynamics Simulator. And uh, that model is based on the NIST-developed FDS model. FDS stands for Fire Dynamics Simulator. This is a fully coupled three-dimensional fluid model uh, that handles combustion so it has chemistry in it. It has materials in it. It tracks momentum, heat transfer, you know, all the Navier-Stokes equations. Uh, it's a very, very robust technical model that enables us to capture not only the combustion process, but also the fire-atmosphere interactions. Mm-hmm. So specifically what we do uh, during those uh Instrumented prescribed burns we collect i uh, e sample wildland fuels and that's done through the forest service because they have uh, all the uh expertise uh in that uh part of the um, in in that area they uh they collect the uh, wildland fuel samples and we essentially take the fuels apart you can really think of it as deconstruction of the wildland vegetation. We literally take it apart down to the twig level and measure the attributes of the fuel, weigh them, sample them, uh, look at the moisture content. And this information is then provided to our model. Uh, But that's not all. Uh, When possible, we also use additional aerial aerial, uh, data, such as Uh, Lidar to help us map the wildland fuels and create a three-dimensional representation of the wildland plot or parcel that we're going to be burning in Hmm. our model.
0: So is that the primary function for the unmanned uh, vehicle, uh, the LIDAR, or, or, or are you collecting other data with them too?
2: We uh, Right now, the LIDAR information that we are collecting is based on um, manned large fixed-wing platforms because of the weight of the LIDAR sensors. Mm-hmm. The unmanned aerial vehicles that we have uh, have three um, specific purposes. Number one is to map out fire behavior during prescribed burns. And this is what we're here doing in uh, uh, Texas, uh, really for the first time, um, quantifying some of the uh, particulars of our flight ops um, for the ground conditions of interest to us. The uh, uh, second objective, in terms of the implementation of this technology to our specific field, uh, down the, uh, line, we are interested in using these aerial platforms and man aerial platforms as part of our post-fire data collection process. We have an entire um, project aimed at post-fire data collection. Uh, we uh, have developed this methodology. The methodology actually was used here in Bastrop uh, during the uh, 2011 uh, Bastrop fires uh, where they lost over 1,600 homes. Mm-hmm. Um, we used this method in Amarillo, Texas earlier in uh, 2011, and this is a result of our early data collection efforts in California during the Witch and Gajito fires in 2007. Uh, so we go in and, instru- and uh, uh, map the aftermath of the fire in the community uh, in order to reconstruct in very fine detail what happened in time and space as that fire moved to that community. Uh, and we want to be able to now use unmanned aerial vehicles in a post-fire setting to get some very high-resolution imagery uh, right after the fire has moved to the community, before anything is disturbed. But um, the this, this third part is there is uh, potential. Here for uh, UAVs to be implemented as part of a situational awareness for the instant commander during some of those large events. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the evolution and progression, our first mission uh, or our first objective here is to collect data from prescribed uh, burns. Uh, and that is a very long term um, undertaking because there are many fuels many topographical conditions and many weather conditions that we need to map out. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as we move further along, the next uh, objective is going to be to go to incidents and not fly post-fire and help uh, and use UAVs to help us with our post-fire data collection. And because of the mobility of the platform and uh, the long loiter time and all of those attributes.
0: All right. So uh, so primarily the, the, the first let's say prong here is going to be more of a uh, forensic type of, of, of study where you're going to be uh, checking out how different fuels burned and, and paths and things like that. Um, and so let, let me, uh, you know, again, um, how many, uh, how many of these aircraft does NIST own?
2: We have uh, five aircraft. They're not all configured in exactly the same uh, way for uh different reasons. Uh, we have uh, uh, aircraft that have um, uh, infrared cameras on them, and then we have uh, aircraft that uh, have higher resolution uh, visible, uh, depending on what type of data we want to collect. Uh, I want to point out um, uh, just uh, when we when I mentioned we're doing this, or you know, we will be doing this for prescribed burns, these vehicles will be flown during the prescribed burn. Uh, mm-hmm. So it's not it in the sense that we're doing it after the fact, like we're going to be mapping out communities, we are actually interested in collecting the fire spread information as that fire is moving through our field of, uh,
0: okay.
2: of, of uh, wildlife fuel.
0: Man, that sounds good. I like that. So you're getting some, uh, some real-time data as the fire is burning.
2: Yeah, and uh, this is uh, really uh, the uh, technical challenge is to pull – not just the UAV data um, by itself. I mean, there are a lot of technical um, uh, challenges associated with getting good uh, quality UAV information, but that's not sufficient for us. Uh, We do this together with an extensive array of uh, ground-based sensors uh, to help us collect information on heat fluxes, to help us collect... uh, uh, wind information near ground, and we also use ground based SODARs, that's uh, sound detection and ranging instruments, to help us look at the wind aloft up to 200 meters uh, AGL. So it's a complete package of pre fire fuel mapping and fuel sampling, along with uh, weather uh, data collection during the event, together with the UAV information.
0: And uh, are are you guys using all of the same um, unmanned aircraft systems? The Superbat?
2: Yeah, all five of our platforms are Superbat. Uh, we are only flying one platform uh, at the time.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. It seems like uh, that's kind of the running uh, running mindset is to uh, buy all of the same platform, and I guess it's easier to keep things maintained and and flown and and uh, know the platform. Um, okay, so you know that's all uh, extremely interesting, and I, I'm, I'm really uh, liking the science part of this. And I understand what you're saying, and it all makes sense. And I can definitely see the uh, benefit to society and the country and everything else, and people and property, with the um, collection of this data and the use of this technology. Now, let me—I I, want to ask about the mechanics here. You know what's the uh, exercise setup? Was there a set plan? You said you're 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 in early uh, with this technology, so is there is there a set plan? Are you guys kind of uh, w- uh, learning as you go along and kind of evolving, or uh, what's that look like?
2: Well, let me give you a little bit of background. Um, I uh, started uh, planning this uh, field data collection with a man. Aerial Vehicles, when I was uh, in uh, Australia, because we grew up cold with um, uh, my uh, technical partner, Roddy Mel from the Forest Service, uh, in Australia after the 2009 um, Black Saturday fires Mm -hmm. uh, to help their post-fire data collection methodology. Uh, So this process started in February 2009 uh so this this has not been just uh put together in the last week uh it has been uh planned laid out uh we started the uh, uh op process we got our COA in place uh the uh technical team um of uh, the uh flight operators the observers all of that you know all the training the um uh, science uh, has been uh evolving, maturing, but all with our exposure scale in mind. Uh, The data that we are trying to collect is really, uh, does not exist anywhere else. And it's absolutely critical to help us solve, uh, to help us address this wildland urban interface problem. If we cannot map out fire behavior in the wildlands uh, in a quantifiable way, I'm not talking qualified, quantifiable, we need to be able to track fire behavior. We need to understand what is burning, where it's burning, why it's burning. If we can do all of that, then we can develop reliable, implementable, and tested hazard mitigation solutions. So the UAVs are a small part, uh, but a critical part of our overall technical plan to to reduce uh, losses of the interface.
0: Interesting. Okay, so you're directly applying the tool to the need. Fair to say?
2: Uh, Absolutely, absolutely. You know, we have identified, uh, you know, almost five years actually, a little over five years ago, that uh, this would be a very um, uh, that the potential was here for um, for this technology to help solve this specific um, technical need and uh, now we are right at the edge uh, where we can start demonstrating um uh, the benefits of uh
1: of this technical coupling between UAVs and uh, field fire research and and Patrick I will want to interject here that uh, one of the things that we've been doing from a procedural standpoint is we we've been building uh, our own process to prove that we can conduct these operations safely uh, we've got, uh, uh, we're, we're tabulating the number of flights that we have in now, but we have countless hours, launches and landings, and, uh, we've, we've got a very good record, and, uh, I think that's a part and parcel of our developing the, the safe procedures that we use, and, you know, we're, we're conservative about our, our flight parameters, but, uh, you know, we've always managed to get, get the job done, uh, Additionally, you know, one of the things that we're learning is that uh, the standard suite of sensors that we get, even the FLIR imager that we've gotten, uh, we discovered that uh, FLIR imagers are are set up to detect body temperature. So after 160 degrees, they're no good to us because Mm -hmm. they sat completely blank out. So we've had to do some some payload development and payload research, and we're testing all that stuff, and and, – Yesterday we we had a very large fire that uh, we got to fly over for uh, an extended period. We were in the air for almost four hours yesterday, and uh, we got to test the uh, the flare modifications that we made, and uh, it was very impressive to watch the fire front and see multiple bands of color as the as the, the fire moved through, burned. It was very hot in areas, and and, and you can see the gradual uh, reduction in heat. So you know, it's all a matter of the learning process, and, and uh, Alex has been very good, and very patient with us as we go through our our flight development process as well. And uh, it's it's worked out pretty good. We've we've uh, we've modified the bats, and we've flown them in just about uh, all kinds of conditions that we uh, we are comfortable with, and it's working out pretty well. And we like the we like the platform. Yeah. I, I would like to uh, add um, just a couple of things. Uh, the, sure. The uh,
2: research here is uh, um, uh, technically very um, challenging, but I, I want to emphasize the uh, safety component. Uh, everything that we do has been uh, tied to uh, training that we have been uh, provided by the manufacturer. Uh, all modifications to the plane are done by the manufacturer, uh, and uh, everything is done uh, explicitly following every single requirement that has been uh, um, um, provided to us through our COA. Uh, So uh, the operation is uh, uh, very uh, precise, and uh, uh, we follow all the uh, protocols that have been uh, developed very um, uh, strictly. Mm -hmm. Uh, And none of that has prevented us from pushing our uh, science forward. It has uh it has worked very well and uh uh we were able to um uh really over the last year uh develop the uh, technical know how to uh that the, it's gonna uh, push this exposure scale forward.
0: Well that's it's it's uh very interesting and intriguing information and uh, concept. Well, we're down to about uh, 35 seconds here. It happens quick. I don't know if Gene warned you, Alex. <laughs> we got, it's always every time I start, wow, geez, I'm 45 minutes here. But uh, it happens rather fast. Very fascinating. We're going to have to, uh, I'm going to definitely say let's, uh, let's have you back next year because uh, I'd, I'd like to say, okay, well, we yeah. have a year. What did you collect? What are your interpretations? What's the cost versus value? Yada, yada, yada. So we'll have to check back on that. Um, next year, but Alex, I want to thank you very much for coming on. Very informative. Uh, I really find the uh, the science uh, side of things um, fascinating. And Gene, thank you for the insight. You guys have a good uh, good rest of the week, and we'll see everyone next week.
1: Okay, we'll see you, Patrick.
2: Thank you.
0: Bye bye.